We continue with our freedom series and last week I started to preach on joy. Amen. How many of you got something there in that message last week? I started to preach on joy. You can catch up via the website if you missed that and I'm going to continue today part two talking about unlocking joy in our lives. How many of you know that we cannot experience true freedom if we can't walk in joy? And I said to you that joy is a spiritual quality. And I described to you the different levels of happiness. And I said, we're talking about level five, which is joy. It is not based on happenings. It is not based on circumstances. It is not based on what you can see in the natural. It is based on Jesus and who he is. And I defined joy biblically for you, that word kara. And I said that it speaks of your response to your knowledge of God's goodness. When you're aware that God delights in you, that thing that you experience is joy. Amen? So we cannot talk about joy without talking about the goodness of God. And I said to you that in the Old Testament, that word joy is a word, ha, it's, 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 I won't describe it in the, in the Hebrew, but it's a very powerful word that literally speaks of the verb to rejoice. So we cannot, we cannot separate that thing we experience joy from rejoicing. It's something you do. You choose to rejoice. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? King David said, put your hope in God. I'm choosing to rejoice. Amen. And so we're going to continue with this particular process of joy. And we're going to tap into it deeply. I explained to you some principles around joy, some very powerful principles around joy. And I'm going to continue doing that today. Amen. If you've, if you've got, if you're a nursing mom and your child gets niggly, we've got um, a room at the back there and we've actually got the video feed, all right? So you won't miss out on the message. We've got a nice video feed and you can tap into, into that, all right? God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. All right, so here we go. Are you ready? Right. How many of you know and think I was on point number four? Joy gives you strength. Joy gives you strength. Some people think, let me first get strength. Let me first achieve my goals in life. Then I will be happy. What researchers are finding today is that happiness makes you feel powerful. When people feel good about themselves, when they feel good about life, there's a chemical response in your physical body that empowers you to do great things. Amen? And yet the way many people live is their starting point is anxiety. So they feel anxious until they achieve something great. Then they say, oh, I'm feeling happy, which is fine, but it's just a base level of happiness, like when you score a goal, right? And then what happens after that? They, go, they slip back into anxiety where they wonder, was I really successful or not? Amen? And now we see the scripture in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our God. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your, for the joy of the Lord is your. How many of you are feeling weak this morning? You're feeling tired this morning. You're dreading going into the week. 
Instead of having the mindset that many of us have, let me just get through the week, then I'll be happy next weekend. Let me just get through that exam, then I'll be happy. No, your joy is based on Jesus and what he's done. And Jesus is good to you and has been good to you and will always be good to you, exam or no exam. Amen? Cash or no cash. God is good. That's the constant in our lives. Amen. And I want to encourage you to experience that particular joy. I was speaking to one of the parents at, our, at the school our kids go to yesterday. And she said, you know what, Paul? I'm tired of just living for the weekend. I said to her, do you experience that dread when the school term is about to start? How many of you know what I'm talking about? When the school term is about to start and it's like, <sighs> a lot of moms in particular go through that. Amen. God doesn't want us to live in that space. That is not your portion. It is not your portion. I said to you last week, research has shown that joy produces dopamine in your system and it helps you to actually perform better. Number five, joy draws people. How many of you know that when people are happy, when people are full of joy, the joy of the Lord, it's attractive, isn't it? It's attractive. What does a smile do? When you see someone smiling, what does that do? Psychologically, you feel welcome. When someone is smiling, you feel welcome. That's what a smile does. There's some people who never smile. I remember some years ago coaching a particular person in one of the banks. And I said to her, you know what? It was a lady. I said, you know what? You're a much nicer person than you look. I know that sounds horrible and you're like hey pastor you said that and she agreed and says yeah you know what I agree people have told me that because she had such a stern look on her face and you, you know those people and the sad thing is a lot of people have got that and they're not aware of it I want to encourage you those of you who aren't smilers smile more it's actually been found physiologically and I think I said this to you last week that when you smile right it affects the muscles on your face and that actually sends a signal to your brain that we are happy here we are happy people here do you know that okay people smile because they feel happy right they feel content it's actually been found that if you do this and you force yourself to smile you actually start feeling happier <laughs> so we must smile amen all right, joy draws people. Joy can be experienced at a national level. You know that you draw people, you attract people when you're joyful and that joy can impact the whole nation. If you just look at the research, there have been studies carried out where you've got certain nations that are generally quite depressed, especially a lot of the nations where there isn't that much sunlight, okay? And here we are on the African continent. You know, sometimes I wish, just with the sun that we get here in Swane, those of us who live here, I sometimes think, oh, I wish I'd set up solar. How many of you have had that thought? I wish I'd set up solar. All this, all this solar energy is being wasted. I wish I'd set up solar. How many of you have solar at home? Hey guys, we could get a business going, huh? All right. <laughs> But, but I sometimes wish that. We've got so much sun, but the sunlight actually also affects your mood, doesn't it? So just be careful of winter, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right? But there are nations that are joyful nations, and there are other nations that are generally quite heavy nations, quite depressed nations. Watch this. In Esther, chapter 8, verse 17, 
It says, in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Okay? So the, the Jewish people were joyful. Then it says, and many people of other nationalities, of other nationalities, became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now this is interesting for me. These were not intimidating people, they were joyful people. That's what it's just said. But it says that many nations also then became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Your joy should be something the world can't explain. People should look and say, wow, this person is going through so much, but look at the joy they're experiencing. And guess what? We'll actually affect the joy levels of the nation. Isn't that powerful? I think it's so amazing. They were not intimidating people, but they were joyful. And yet fear seized the others and drew them in. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you have joyful families. You have some families, there are certain families I know, I can think of a particular family, where whenever you were around them, there was just this connection between the father, the daughter, the grandchildren, they've all got such a good sense of humor. And whenever you're around them, you're just laughing. Then you go to some places and people have just this somber mood, consistently. It's like that's the only constant in the family, you know that there will be no laughing. You know when some people are consistently negative, I don't, I don't want to go there. Some people might think, uh, Paul, you're dissing us. Paul, you hang out with us the other day and you're thinking of us. You know how church folk are. Number six, joy is our response to his presence. Joy is our response to his presence. The very nature of God's presence is that it's full of joy. You know what's so sad? Sad to say many people dissociate joy and gladness from church. Have you noticed that? They think of religion kind of like health food. It's good for you, but hey, you have to enjoy it. You have to enjoy it. You don't enjoy it, you endure it. You know, eat your greens, eat your greens, eat your greens. And people treat church like that. That it's a thing you have to endure. You can't pack out laughing. I've even found some religious folk in church, I have to sometimes remind them to laugh. I've seen it in this church. I've seen my wife having to do it sometimes. Like, guys, it was a joke. You can laugh. <laughs> wow! It comes out. It's interesting. Anyway, but that's not true. The presence of God, the manifest presence of the Lord is something we can actually enjoy. The Bible declares that in God's presence is fullness of joy. So don't tell me, oh, I was in God's presence. It was so wonderful. But you look like you've been baptized in lemon juice. All right? In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever. Psalm 16 verse 11 says that. At his right hand are pleasures forever. You know when people are always going out into the world looking for pleasure? It shows me that they're not spending time in God's presence. One of the things I enjoy doing the most. If you say, Paul, what's your favorite hobby? What do you love doing? Being in his presence and getting revelation from him. Hearing his voice. One of the things I enjoy most, and I know it's the same for my wife. Amen? How do you explain that when people say, oh, what's your favorite thing? That's where I experience pleasures forevermore. Pleasure forevermore. Amen. Now, what's interesting is, if we as his people are to reflect God's image, then we must become joyous people. If we're truly to reflect God's presence, if we're carriers of his presence, we must be joyful people. 
right? <clears throat> Isaiah 12 verse 6 says, praise the Lord in song. That's what we did this morning. For he has done excellent things. How many of you believe God has done excellent things? You might not have, but God has done excellent things. Right? <laughs> Let this be known throughout the earth. Whatever God has done in your life, don't just rejoice in private. Let it be known throughout the earth. How do we do that? Well, verse 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy. It doesn't say whisper for joy. Doesn't say when you're just in a prayer meeting, hmm, hey my brother, hey my sister Cindy, I'm rejoicing, hey that breakthrough, hey I'm rejoicing. No, it says cry aloud and shout for joy. It doesn't say only if you're a sunshine, yellow, bubbly, extroverted personality. We're just talking Bible here, ladies and gentlemen. Some people glorify their personalities and say, Paul, that's not me. The Bible here, ladies and gentlemen, says, cry aloud and shout for joy. It's wonderful when you see the quietest person in the church. When they get their praise on, they begin to do things that are not in line with their personality. Amen? Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Jonathan Edwards. How many of you remember Jonathan Edwards, right? A couple of centuries ago, he was very instrumental in the awakening that happened in the United States. And what is interesting, he's the guy who wrote the sermon. You know, they used to write sermons out those days. And he preached the sermon basically entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Okay, he's that guy. He's a guy not to mess with, right? And it really convicted people. But you know what? He also had a particular sermon called God the best portion of the Christian and was based on Psalms the book of Psalms 73 verse 25 you know the one that says whom have I in heaven but you and besides you I desire nothing on earth oh that is so powerful whom have I in heaven but you there's a worship song that goes like that right whom have I in heaven but you and besides you I desire nothing on earth right and um, so let me read to you an excerpt from this particular sermon he says and I like the lingo you know it's old school old school is nice huh? He says hence we may learn that whatever changes a godly man passes through he is happy because God who is unchangeable is his chosen portion though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many. Yea. Not, this, is, this is not yay as in yay, hippie It's not that type of yay. It's yay. Y-E-A. Okay. Yay. Of all his temporal enjoyments, yet God whom he prefers before all still remains and cannot be lost. While he stays in this changeable, troublesome world, he is happy because his chosen portion you have to choose it. His chosen portion on which he builds as his main foundation for happiness is above the world and above all changes. And when he goes into another world, still he is happy because that portion yet remains. How great is the happiness of those who have chosen the fountain of all good, who prefer him before all things in heaven or on earth and who can never be deprived of him to all eternity. 
Isn't that powerful? Have you chosen God? Have you chosen Jesus as your portion, your primary portion, as your source of joy? If you have, he becomes a constant in your life and you'll always be full of joy. Amen? Someone caught that. Number seven, number seven, sacrifice and giving should be done in joy. When we serve God, when we do things, whether it's in church, whether it's an outreach, whether we're going to work, because even when we're doing our work, we're doing it as unto the Lord. Amen. It should be done in joy. It's the book of Psalms 27 verse 6 says, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with what? With shouts of joy. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. Problem today is many Christians, when they sacrifice, and very often it's not really a sacrifice, but they think it is. How many of you know that when you're backslidden, just coming to church, it's like, hey, I sacrificed to come to church. Hey, God must be so impressed with me because I am here. That's what backslidden people say, because for them, that's the sacrifice, right? But here, it's saying that I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. Most of us complain when we sacrifice. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Who's a songwriter here? You can claim that one. You can claim it. Don't feel bad when you write new songs. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Amen? When you do God's work, do it in joy. The book of Psalms 100 verse 2, it says, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with what type of songs? Joyful songs. I love joyful songs. Do you ever have those songs where you're driving your vehicle and they just lift you up? They just take you to another level. Amen? I think that's awesome. Everyone say hi to Jacob. Hi, Jake. He's there. He's being dedicated next week. We're so excited about that. Amen. The book of Ezra, chapter 6, verse 22. It says, For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of god the god of israel so god was the one who filled them with joy one of the best places to be is when the nature of the joy that you're experiencing is joy that comes from heaven where he fills you with inexpressible joy extremely powerful proverbs 12 verse 20 says deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil but the counselors of peace have what have joy how many of you counsel people how many of you counsel your friends bible is saying counselors of peace have joy when you serve god when you do the work of the ministry do it with joy Proverbs 21 verse 5 says it is a joy for the just to do justice it's a joy for us to do justice but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity Philippians 4 verse 1 in the NIV it says therefore my brothers and sisters you whom I long for whom I love and long for my joy 
and my crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. That word crown is the word Stephanus. You know some people are called Stephanus, right? I know a little boy called Stephanus, right? It comes from the word Stepho, which means to encircle. In other words, it surrounds you. And he's basically saying, you guys are my joy. You guys who are around me here, you are my joy. You know that people can be your joy. They can be the source of joy for you. You know that? You know that sometimes your children or your spouse, they can be your joy. Are you a joy to your parents? Just think about it. Are you a delight to them? I remember when I was preaching at City Life Church, a Christian who's the son of the pastors there, he was emceeing and going for it and he's now 17. And I said to Pastor, to Pastor James, you know what? He must be a joy to you just seeing your 17-year-old child here, son, serving God. And you could just see this delight just welling up in Pastor James. So sometimes certain people can be your joy and your crown. Are you following me this morning? Do you just complain about your family members or do you focus on, wow, I'm so blessed to have these people and they become your joy. Very powerful. And that's something that can keep you going when you're experiencing difficulties in life. When you just say, sometimes I will give my wife a hug and I'll say, at least I have you. You can say, no. Don't look so sad and gloomy. Don't be jealous. At least I have you. You are my joy. Amen. <laughs> Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Number eight. I want you to know this morning that things can change. Things can change. You might have been in life starting out depressed, starting out struggling, but things can change. Please say to the person next to you, things can change. change. Isaiah 35 verse 10, it says, And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy in other words a joy that doesn't leave you everlasting joy will crown their heads will encircle them imagine being encircled by joy but it's an everlasting joy now are these people who always felt this joyful no because it says gladness and joy I'm prophesying this over you now gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away they were in a place of sorrow they were in a place of sighing the Lord is saying that will flee away gladness and joy will overtake you so now as we go into the final stretch of this message what are some keys to unlocking your joy we've explained joy we've defined joy what are some practical keys to unlocking joy how many of you would want that Practical keys, things you can do. How many of you are how-to people? You know, you have some people who are how-to people. Like Paul, explain to me how to do the following. And that's what I'm going to do right now. We've said before that happy people feel more secure. They decide easier. You know that when you're feeling joyful, it's easier to make decisions. Happy people, researchers found that they feel more secure they decide easier. They have more cooperative behavior. 
they cooperate with you. How many of you know that when someone is depressed, they become very reliant? You say to them, so why didn't you come to the function? I didn't get a meeting request. But you know you're always invited. Hey, Paul, nowadays, <laughs> I'm just a worker here. I'm leaving it now to the powers that be. Hey, I'm just a worker, Paul. It's been found that happy people feel more secure. They decide easier. They have more cooperative behavior. And they also have a satisfying life in, in the changing environment. Okay? So happiness is good. Amen? Right. So how do we unlock it? Number one, develop meaningful relationships. Develop meaningful relationships. You know that a lot of research tries to get people to remember their past? Think about it. I'm a, I'm a researcher at heart. And often when you're researching something, you ask people. So when you were five years old, tell me. So when you started your job, what happened? Right? But there's an exciting piece of research that has been carried out. It's the longest ever. It's now been about 75 years running. Non-stop. This research. Right? And it's actually research real time. So it's asking people about how they're feeling currently. Do you understand the difference, right? And what is interesting, it was, it's a Harvard study of adult development. And it's, it's been over 75 years, and they've tracked the lives of 724 men, right? 724 men. And they found that the happiest people are the ones that have the most meaningful relationships. They found a, a positive correlation between your happiness, your sense of contentment in life, and deep, meaningful relationships. Amen? Some other research was carried out that showed that if you are feeling stressful as a person and you're going through extreme stress, they did some research on people who had stressful experiences, it increased their chances of dying by about 30%. In other words, when you're living, you know, hypertension, all those things that come with stress, okay, it heightens your, your risk, your chances for a premature death. We know that. There are lots of people dying of stress-related diseases. But guess what they found? They found that the people who are in a high-stress situation but were actually also involved in meaningful, caring relationships where they were actually showing care, but in a way that had a strong sense of meaning that didn't apply to them. Are you following? It didn't apply to them. So you can experience a high-stress job, but if you're in loving, caring relationship that is meaningful, it reduces your chances for premature death. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So relationships are good. Good relationships are good. Okay, just want to qualify that. Second John chapter 1 verse 12 says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Praise God for emails, huh? <laughs> Maybe he was prophesying. <laughs> Maybe it's because of that declaration that someone, you know, got into this whole technology of emailing. Anyway, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face. Face to face. Why? Why does he want to talk to them face to face? So that our joy may be complete. 
so that our joy may be complete. There's something about face-to-face, -face, meaningful interaction with another human being that increases your joy level. Amen? You know how, you know, you, know the, you know the, what do they call it? The love drug. You know how oxytocin is generated in your system when you get hugged, right? And you end up feeling good, right? That type of contact and so on, right? When we're in loving, meaningful relationships, it affects how we feel. So what are some characteristics of deep, meaningful relationships? What are some characteristics of this? Number one, emotional intimacy. How many of you have got another human being with whom you are emotionally intimate with? You can raise your hand. That's the standard way of responding in the church. I don't expect you to say, yes, yes. That's important. Have you ever, have you ever heard of crowded loneliness? Where you can be in a crowd, but you still feel lonely. There's some people like that. There's some people who are what we call social introverts. You know what a social introvert is? You know the kind of person, it seems like they're the life of the party and feels like they know everyone. But at a certain point you're like, but guys, what do we actually know about this person? What's their story? And you realize you don't really know the person. And there are many people who fake it today. Emotional intimacy is crucial. Empathy is important comes from two Latin words, M and pathos. Emily was about to say, yes, yes, sir. M and pathos, it means feeling into. Where you can be like, hey, I feel you, Tendai, I feel you. Three types of empathy. There's I feel you, there's I get you, and there's I'm here for you. So important in our relationships with each other. Amen? Vulnerability. You cannot experience emotional intimacy with another human being without some degree of vulnerability. When was the last time you made yourself vulnerable? Those of you who've been hurt in life, you find that you, you know those people who project this hard exterior, like they're a real tough cookie, but inside, they're soft marshmallow. Vulnerability. In deep, meaningful relationships, you feel secure. You feel secure. That word secure, if you look at the Latin and you unpack it, it literally speaks of without care. Where you're not worried. I feel safe with you. How many of you have got relationships with people where you feel safe with them? When you're around them, you just feel safe. You can see people holding hands, lifting them up. Yeah. It's your opportunity to wax lyrical. Meaningful relationships, you feel significant as a person. When I feel significant, I feel like I matter. I feel like when I walk into a room, my presence is felt. When I leave those people, they miss me. How many of you are in relationships right now where you feel significant? You see, freedom takes place and liberty will take place in community. This is how God frees us. Self-acceptance. How many of you are in relationships where you feel a strong sense of self-acceptance? You feel like, I belong. I am loved for who I am, not for what I do. Where you feel like you will still get as much attention even if you didn't do what you do. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this is where God is taking us because it's only in the context of those types of relationships, that's how God has designed us, where we will experience a higher level of joy. He's made us relational being, beings. In these relationships, there's also self-respect. Often when someone gets into a relationship, I say to them, how does that person make you feel? How do you feel when you're in that person's presence? Do you feel like you're just an object of their lust? I'm building on what my brother Stuart was sharing earlier on. Or do you feel a sense of self-respect, a sense of dignity because of how they treat you? We're talking about meaningful relationships here. My dignity, can you say, my dignity is reinforced in this relationship? Uh, no, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't saying repeat me, repeat after me. I was just saying, can you say that in that situation? Although it sounded good, actually. <laughs> My dignity is reinforced in the relationship. Ladies, you feel like a princess in the presence of your husband. And the church went quiet. All right? <laughs> in these relationships, there's a strong sense of self-efficacy. In other words, you feel confident. Self-efficacy is the same as self-confidence. It's your belief about your ability. You come out of their presence feeling like I can take on the world. I can do great things. You know, there's some people who are smart people, but whenever you're around them, you feel stupid. They don't reinforce your intelligence. But there are other people, whenever you leave their presence, you feel more significant as a person. Amen? And so you want to always be around them. And you feel joyful when you're around them. You feel you can take on the world. These deep, meaningful relationships, they reinforce your sense of self-worth. What is self-worth? It's not, oh, because I can do A, B, C, D, and I'm now worth something. No, there's a strong sense of I am worth something as a person. I am special. And because I'm special, I do special things. Because I'm worth something, I do things that are great. But the starting point is who I am in God. Amen? Is that reinforced in your relationships? That's the first key in unlocking joy, meaningful relationships. Some of you have been doing what we call hide, hiding from love. You know what hiding from love is? Where the very people God has sent into your life to show you love, you are hiding from them. You're rejecting yourself before you can be rejected. It's easier to do that, isn't it? Number two, key number two in unlocking your joy, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. It's what we call spiritual object constancy, where Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me. It's not a case where you only abide in him when you're in a service connecting with him, but throughout your life. John 15 verse 11 says, Jesus is speaking, he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. So you experience joy to the degree to which you have his words in you. He says, I've told you this. So there are things that Jesus says to us as we abide in him that produces joy. He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be may be complete. Jesus is interested in our joy being complete, but it only happens to the degree to which we abide in him. 
In Christ, I am complete. His words are so dominant in my heart that other words don't affect me. That's what we should all be able to say. His voice is the loudest within me. Listening to Jesus' words breaks us into new levels of joy. Carrying his words, abiding in his words, takes us to new dimensions of joy. Do you know that a study was done at the University of Pennsylvania on people praying in tongues? And they found that as these people were praying in tongues, the pattern in their brain, the signals, the brain pattern actually changed. Some of you might have heard of that. The brain pattern signals actually changed. So people who thought like, ah, these people are just faking it. They were now like thinking, but how come we're seeing this change in the brain pattern for all of them? For example, the section of your brain, the, your, your frontal cortex that deals with self-control, that was functioning at a lower level. <laughs> okay? Because when you're praying in the spirit, what's happening? The spirit is enabling you to pray. Isn't that interesting? What's also been found is that when we pray out aloud for extended periods of time, it actually affects our immune system. Go and look at the studies. I'm not going to go into all of it now. It affects your immune system and it also activates interesting chemicals in your body. I realized the way I feel after Ignite, and my wife and I have spoken about this, often the way I feel after Ignite, Ignite is our time of extended prayer in this church, but the way I feel after Ignite is the same way I feel on that rare occasion when I've gone for a jog, when I've been running. You know that the same chemicals are be in your brain, the same neurotransmitters in your brain are being activated. Isn't that powerful? And the result is joy. Often after Ignite, it's difficult to go to sleep, isn't it? There's just this excited feeling, sort of like, <sighs> the same feeling joggers have after they've done a run. Often it's similar, isn't it? Come on, guys, are you with me here? Or do you just pray and not jog? Who prays and jogs? Okay. <laughs> I knew Trace is guaranteed. It's a guarantee. All right. I just think that's so powerful. It's been found that voluntary speech, that, um, that voluntary speech during extended vocal prayer causes a major stimulation in these parts of the brain, mainly your hypothalamus. Okay, and that's to do with direct regulation of four major systems of the body. Your pituitary gland, gland right, and all target endocrine glands, right? Uh, the total immune system, the entire autono autonomic system, and um, the production of brain hormones, okay, which are really neural transmitters, right, called endorphins, right, and encephalons, right? Encephalons have same impact as endorphins, right? Powerful stuff, guys. Powerful stuff. And those of you who want some of these studies, I can also email them through to you, the scientists in our midst. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Number three, shift from being deficit-based to asset-based in your thinking. How many of you know the difference between asset-based thinking and deficit-based thinking? There's a growing minority of people. They're still in the minority, but they're growing in number. And they're called asset-based thinkers. These are people who are more sensitive to opportunity than calamity. 
They can see opportunities within a calamity. We call them asset-based thinkers and they tend to be more successful and more fulfilled in life. They're more effective when they do what they do, but they're more fulfilled, they're more joyful. Deficit-based thinking is this. It's where you are more sensitive to a calamity than an opportunity. So if I have to have a difficult conversation, if someone has to have a difficult conversation with, who can I pick on? With my wife, with Pastor Tracy, right? There's some people who are deficit-based who will be like, ah, Pastor Tracy, oh, ah, she might change how she sees me. Let me play it safe and I won't say anything. That's deficit-based thinking. The acid-based thinker will be like, you know what, it's going to be a difficult conversation, but let me have it anyway. We'll get each other, we'll understand each other, and we'll become closer in the process. Amen? Now, there are three dimensions to acid-based thinking. Dimension number one is your personal, your personal assets. I'm not talking about houses and cars. I'm talking about the things no one can take away from you. When you're acid-based in your thinking, your mindset is, I'm courageous. No one can take that from me. I'm a quick learner. No one can take that from me. I form relationships with people quickly. No one can take it from me. Amen? Right? Those are your personal assets. Acid-based thinkers are conscious of those. What happens when you're conscious of those personal assets that you've got? When you walk into a room, you're thinking, I'm a friendly person who's feeling lonely, and you want to bless them. When you're deficit-based, you walk into a room and your mindset is, are they going to like me? Am I dressed appropriately? What's going to happen? Can you see how that affects your level of joy? The second type of acid-based thinking, the first type is your personal assets. The second is your relational assets. Your relational assets. What do we mean by that? It's being conscious of the people around you who you can access. Being conscious of how you're so blessed with people who can help you to do what you need to do. Have you noticed that often when someone is feeling depressed, they feel like they're all alone. There's that strong sense of, I'm just by myself, there's no one to help me. Have you ever been at work and you go up to someone who's struggling, let's say with Excel, they're struggling to figure out Excel, and they've been struggling for the last two hours. Then you go up to them and you say, but wait a minute, you told me that you've got a cousin who's an expert with Excel and you're actually quite close and they love helping out. And the person's like, oh yeah, of course, of course. Can you see what's happening? You're an asset-based thinker and you're aware of the assets around the person. They're a deficit-based thinker and they're overwhelmed because they just think, I'm alone, I'm by myself. Some of you in this room are not aware of the assets you have around you. You're not aware. It's the point that Stuart was making. We are saying, but your pastor has done A, B, C, D. You can tap into that. I'm, you know I'm very generous with my resources. Oh, I want to do this talk here. I want to do this. I'll give you the stuff. Amen? Think about the people in your small group. I often have people come, Paul, we have to figure out, there's so many accountants in this church. There's so many lawyers in this church. There's so many people who are clued up. Some of you struggle with your nutrition. And you've been wondering like, ah, oh, but I think I need to go on a diet, but what did I do? We've got people who are lifestyle consultants, Trace, other people who are clued up. We've got personal trainers in this church. I think we've got two or three personal trainers. Are you feeling me this morning? Those are your relational assets. And when you're conscious of them, it produces joy. The third type of asset is what we call situational, a situational asset. A situational asset. This is an opportunity within a calamity. When you go home today, say to yourself, what is a negative situation that I'm in right now? 
that I'm going through. And then make a list of the opportunities within that negative situation. What's been found is that people who have trained themselves to do that end up experiencing more joy than people who just focus on the problem. Amen? I remember once speaking to a particular guy. He was heading up software in a particular organization. And I was coaching him and he said, Paul, you know what? It's been quite tough here because two guys have just resigned. I'm like, okay. And he says, and one of them was one of our star performers. Then I had what's called an asset-based conversation with this individual. And I said to him, but what's the opportunity? And then he suddenly said, you know what, Paul, it's not all doom and gloom. Because in actual fact, these particular roles that these guys were playing are not actually core to our business. And so in actual fact, Paul, you know what? We've always wanted to put contractors in their place, but we couldn't because there were permanent people who were working here. Now that they're going, we've got this opportunity. He began to focus on the opportunity within the calamity. Some of you focus too much on the calamity. Amen? So what are the different assets? Number one, your personal assets. Number two, your relational assets. Number three, situational assets. What's the opportunity within the calamity? There's a guy called Sean Aker who did some research. Um, both him and other people have shown the importance of decreasing negative noise to make room for signals for good things. So it's been found that sometimes a lot of us, we've got a lot of internal noise in our minds. And so we're worrying so much. How many of you experience that internal noise in your head? Lots of internal noise. That will affect your joy level. Some research was actually carried out that some people equate, their problem is they equate loving someone with worrying about someone. To love someone does not mean you have to keep worrying about them. It's a myth. It's a myth to think that because I love you, I must always be worried. Just think about it. And many of us equate loving someone with worrying about them. So when we stop worrying and we're content, we feel guilty about it and we start worrying again. Just think about it. And then we become addicted to worry. How many of you know that worrying is addictive? Some people worry so much, it's become a habit. Do you know that it's been found that increase in positive noise, for example, watching good things on TV, listening to good things, and people who've got good things to say, it's actually been found that that helps your joy level. If you watch the news for three minutes each morning, compared to someone who watches a still picture, a still picture with a solution focus, so solving the problem, you have a 27% higher chance of being in a bad mood during that day. Does everyone get that? If you're watching TV and hearing all the negative stuff coming through, like just news, for only three minutes, right? You've got a 27% higher chance of being in a bad mood than someone who just saw a still picture, so it wasn't active, there was no noise. Still picture with a solution focus. What noise are you allowing to get into you that is affecting your level of joy? Are you just accepting that everyone at work is just so negative and you just listen to all their junk? Or are you saying, I'm going to guard what I allow to get into me? You know how it's been found? Are there any doctors here? Are there any doctors here? There's, this, there's what's known as the medical school syndrome. 
medical school syndrome. It's been found that medical students often end up with the diseases they were studying. Yeah, so a lot of medical students, as they get started and so on, and they're learning about this disease, this disease, this disease, and thinking about it so much. And it's like, oh, I've got it now. The funny thing is, there was a particular guy who started talking about how he was now struggling because he was going through menopause. It's a bit of a joke there, guys. Okay. They're increasing people's happiness and seeing that productivity of those people is going up by 31%. It's actually a predictor. Happiness is a predictor of longevity. Just like you have smoking, high blood pressure, and obesity having correlations with premature death, they're actually finding that happiness has a positive correlation with longevity. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know about you, but I'm not going to let things steal my joy. Sometimes I can get an email saying, oh, Paul, here's some marking for you to do with some of the courses I run. Now, if I'm not conscious of this, and if I'm not guarding my joy level, I can suddenly think, ah, I thought that I was looking forward to that free day I've got coming up. Now I have to mark. Uh. Many of us live in that space. And sometimes it's actually an, a strategy of the enemy to get you down. You arrive home and you think you're going to have a nice relaxing Sunday afternoon. And then maybe one of your kids has just remembered, oh, I've got a test tomorrow. Oh, I've got that homework. And you just sink. <laughs> sometimes you sink because you're feeling guilty. You're feeling, I've been a bad mom. I wasn't aware of that test. A bad dad. I wasn't aware of that test. Or you have a sinking feeling saying, oh, this is just invading my life. <laughs> Number four, develop a lifestyle of gratitude. Develop a lifestyle of gratitude. Grateful people sleep better at night than ungrateful people. Grateful people sleep better at night than ungrateful people. Why? They've got more positive thoughts before they go to bed at night. Guys, gratitude is so powerful, particularly when you form a gratitude journal. I've told you before that there are some people who are not feeling great. Their emotional well-being was very low. And they were told, you know what, go identify some people where you're grateful for what they've done, whatever they've done. And then go and tell them, read out a letter, write out a letter, and then tell them that you're grateful. And these people did that, and their emotional well-being went up by 10%. And the ones who sustained it were the ones who had gratitude journals. What's a gratitude journal? It's where you literally write out three to five things that you're grateful for every day. Have you noticed that when you feel grateful, you feel better? One of the things I do in my workshops is I'll say to the group of people, what do you like about this organization? And you hear them saying, this, this, this. And if it's 40 people in a room and each of the people have said something, that is 40 positive things they're grateful for in that organization. And I said, guys, have you, as you've just said this, what has happened to the climate in the room? Everyone is just like on this buzz. Oh, ah, oh. And I say, what would happen when you're preparing to go to work each morning if, that, if this is what you focus on. Often when I start off my day, I'm saying I'm grateful that I'm always meeting people who are influential, who are taking my career to its next level. And guess what I end up meeting every day? Influential people who take my career to its next level. Amen? What you think about and what you think about is what you eventually bring about. There's a strong link between faith and thanksgiving. 
Number five, my last point, take charge of your life. Take charge of your life. You know that it's been found that there's a link between autonomy, a sense of freedom and joy. When you feel controlled by other people, controlled by their mood, controlled by someone else's manipulation, domination and control, you don't feel joy, do you? How many of you have ever felt, oh, I'm just so, oh, I'm just rejoicing, oh, there's just so much joy oozing out of me, but this person is controlling and dominating over me? No. When you're a person who's free, just like Paul the Apostle says, I'm free of all men. Such a powerful statement. Just like Jesus says, Satan has nothing in me. Powerful. God wants you to be free. And the two major areas we need to take charge of is number one, take charge of your use of time. Ask yourself that question that I've given you before. Am I killing time? Am I spending time? Or am I investing time? Sometimes when my wife has had to wait for the kids at school, there's some days where she's in waiting mode and she feels this is taking my time and it affects her mood and she's frustrated. But I remember the one day she came to me and she said, you know what? I'm really looking forward to my time with Daniel while we're waiting for the other boys. I'm really looking forward to it. I see it as I'm investing time in him. Her joy level was at another level. Are you hearing me this morning? Are you killing time? Are you spending time? Or are you investing time? I want to encourage you, keep appointments with yourself. Many of us are good at keeping appointments with other people. Oh guys, I can't, ooh, I can't have a meeting with you. I've got a meeting with Tendai, so sorry I can't. We're good at that. But how many of you can say, sorry, I can't meet with you because I'm reading that book that Stuart recommended. Sorry guys, I can't meet with you because I'm just having some me time. That is the language of someone who's in charge of their time. You value yourself enough, talking about self-respect, you value yourself enough to respect the time you need with yourself. And very often when you have that and you're committed to that time with yourself, by yourself, you become a better person to be around. Amen? So take charge of your use of time. And guys, exercise is a part of this. And I know it's not easy, but exercise is a part of this, isn't it? It's actually been found definitely that one of the key things, key take-homes in terms of feeling more joyful, feeling happier as a person, is physical exertion. Amen? Okay. My wife is, I know what my wife is thinking. She's like, I'm watching you. I'm watching you on this one. Well, she's thinking, I'm going to use this as leverage. I'm going to quote you. When I want to do something with you later on, I'll quote you. I'll say, you preached it. <laughs> Number two, take charge of your emotional state. We'll go deep into this on some other occasion, but if you want to walk in joy, you must take charge of your life, but there are two major areas. Take charge of your time and take charge of your emotional state. Why you downcast, O oh my soul, put your hope in God. Psalm 42 verse 5. Amen. You see, I want to be able to say to people, I love you and I'll give to you because that's what I want to do. Not because I'm afraid of you. I'm a free person. And when you do something by choice, there's joy. When you do something under obligation, there's no joy. Amen. Let's pray.